0: Section 5 of The Black Cat, Volume 2, Number 5, February, 1897. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Black Cat, Volume 2, Number 5, February, 1897. Section 5. Garmin Gutierrez by Edward Silvestri The recent death of a prominent railroad manager renders possible the publication of the following incident belonging to the Cuban Revolution of twenty-odd years ago. Robert Deering and I were classmates at college and friends. We were graduated about two years before the opening of our own war of secession And our employment as subordinate engineers on one of the new railroad lines then building between the east and west together with a congeniality of tastes still more strongly cemented our friendship when the war broke out we separated each to join the command raised by his state for the confederate armies and as he served with beauregard at charleston and then with jackson and lee in virginia while my own services were with the armies of the west We met but once during the entire conflict. It so chanced, however, that towards the close of the war he drifted westward, and we both finally surrendered in the Department of the Trans-Mississippi and together gave our parole not again to take up arms against the government of the United States. We were carried free of expense to New Orleans, and there turned loose on the levee to begin life anew. Fortunately, beyond a few hurts that neither maimed nor disfigured us, we were both sound and whole, for our combined financial resources were sixty-five cents in silver, the bulk of which we invested in paper collars and a shave. We then held a little council of war of our own, and Robert announced his intention of going out to the West Indies to visit some distant relatives, to whom he had already written, intimating, as he put it, that if they wanted the pleasure of seeing their American relative, they would have to provide the means of passage. I tried to dissuade him, urging the insalubrity and heat of the climate, but he replied that it was not so hot there as it would be here for all who had been engaged in the secession war. To make a long story short, in course of time his invitation and remittance came. We parted, he to go to Cuba, and I to gradually resume my old profession. A correspondence begun with the ardor of youth gradually waned, then died altogether. And when, several years later, I incidentally learned that Deering had returned to this country, it was not resumed. All our emigres had returned. Governor Harris and his associates from Mexico, others from Brazil, still others from Jamaica, and so on. It had been a general cry of, home sheep, all around. After sampling the other countries of the world, the old Confederates had found out that, after all, the United States was home and the country best loved by them. Deering had stayed a year or so longer than the rest, but he, too, had finally succumbed to the universal epidemic of patriotism and homesickness, and was now engaged in railway work in the northwest, while I still continued in the south, where I had married and settled. Years passed, and while I occasionally heard of, I never heard from my old-time friend, until 1894. Then, One evening in the spring of that year, I returned from the office to find a telegram that read, Meet me at Union Depot at 10.30 tomorrow morning, signed, Robert Deering. In an instant, the years seemed to roll away by magic, and the old boy love for my comrade came back in full force. My wife, full of hospitality for the friends of my youth, joined heartily in plans for the entertainment of our coming guest. He came but the change was even greater than I had looked for. While really slightly my junior, he appeared many years older. This was partly due to ill health, but there were lines of care about his eyes and mouth that I did not like to see. Deering remained with us a week, and was always genial and pleasant in his intercourse with my family, seeming particularly fond of the younger children. We had many a symposium while sitting with pipes in hand talking over scenes and incidents of the past long after the family had retired at such times he seemed to forget his cares and disease and became again the genial robert i had known in boyhood one night i asked him why with his marked fondness for children he had never married at this he suddenly became very grave and after strict injunctions to faithfully guard his secret during his lifetime which he even then knew would not be long he recounted the following story which i give as nearly as possible in his own words filling his pipe and lighting it after smoking a while in silence he began i can best describe the incident which has caused me to remain unmarried by giving you a full account of my life in the west indies when in eighteen sixty five i left new orleans for cuba i was still full of hope and enthusiasm notwithstanding our reverses here at home I found the life delightful, and my Cuban kinspeople most kind. They were well-to-do sugar planters, and a sugar plantation in those days constituted a little village in itself, where the owner, like a feudal lord, administered, without outside interference, justice, or injustice, as the case may be, to several hundred or a thousand slaves and other dependents. The family generally included also an English or American doctor, and a mechanical engineer of the same nationality. During the time of sugar-making, the plantation was always well-filled with guests from the city, and what with horseback rides in the early morning, books, conversation, and sleep in the heat of the day, and music and dancing at night, the life seemed paradise after my four years of campaigning. The laborers were the slaves, and they appeared a happy, careless lot the poor white man of the country was usually a squatter on some corner of the rich man's estate. He would set out a goodly number of plantain trees and a few tobacco plants around his humble thatched cottage, and while he swung and smoked in his hammock, nature would provide him enough plantains to barter at the crossroads grocery for such coffee, sugar, and to sap, or jerk beef, as he might require. Once each month, however, There must be enough cash passed to buy a lottery ticket of small denomination. These, too, are kept on sale everywhere. Should his ticket, by any chance, prove a lucky one, he immediately invests the proceeds. First, in a gorgeous hat of umbrella-like proportions. Next, in a silver-mounted saddle and bridle, and then in a muchly be-buttoned suit for himself. Should there still be a surplus, some kind of a horse is secured. These men, and the now freed slaves, constitute the rank and file of the Cuban army of today. They are very kindly and hospitable, superstitious to a degree, and very humble and plaint in the hands of their superiors. Amidst these people it was my lot to live for many months, varied with occasional trips to the nearest seaport town. While on one of these trips, I was standing one day on the overhanging porch at the small hotel, or Posada, watching one of the religious processions pass through the street below. On glancing aside, I perceived next to me, her eyes intent on the pageant, a woman whose beauty fairly dazzled me. Unlike the women around her, she was fair-skinned and blue-eyed, so that at first I turned, with glad surprise, to address her as one of my own countrywomen. But her Cuban costume and the way that she handled her fan left no doubt of her Spanish origin. Well... It was a case of love at first sight on my part. I did not meet the lady until months afterwards, but from that hour I lost interest in all other women. At best, they seemed a vapid set, with no reading or general information on which one could base a pleasant acquaintance. In course of time, through the influence of my friends, I secured remunerative employment, which led me to the capital city of Havana. Isabella II was still Queen of Spain, But already there were signs of that discontent of the Cubans under Spanish rule which finally culminated in the First Revolution, the precursor of the present troubles. Secret meetings of the Cubans were held nightly, and the line between them and the Peninsular Spaniards was very sharply drawn. It was not to be wondered at; every office of honor, trust, or emolument was held by a Spaniard, even to the most subordinate and menial positions. Policemen were, without exception, of Spanish birth. As fast as one horde of office holders fattened, they returned to Spain with their gains to be replaced by a fresh set of impecunious Spaniards, hungry and greedy for wealth. Peculation was rife, and the party preyed upon were the Cubans, the owners of the soil and riches of the island. One day, some weeks after my arrival, I was strolling along the Calle de O'Reilly One of the principal shopping streets, when I was arrested by the sight of a lady seated with an older woman in an open carriage that stood before one of the shops. There was no mistaking that fair skin, those wide blue eyes. It was my unknown of the balcony. A clerk of the store was standing by the carriage door exhibiting some stuffs for her selection, as it was not customary in Cuba for ladies to alight when shopping but I could perceive, by her slightly startled glance, that I had been noticed and remembered. Raising my hat to the ladies as I passed, in deference to the polite custom of the country, I hurried up to a public volant, standing near, engaged it by the hour, and instructed the driver to follow the carriage I pointed out, wherever it might go. When, finally, the ladies' purchases were concluded, their carriage started. My volant, at a respectful distance behind it, and rolled out of the city proper, through one of the beautiful gateways, then still existing, but since raised to the ground, along the handsome Pasco de Isabel Segunda and out the Taken Avenue, until it reached the Cerro, then, as now, the fashionable residence quarter. It finally stopped before one of the more modest of the many fine dwellings that line this street, and drove inside the courtyard or patio, by which I knew that she was at home. After carefully noting the house, I returned slowly to my bachelor quarters, revolving in my mind the question how I could best form the acquaintance of my beautiful unknown. In this I experienced no great difficulty. Respectable Americans, who were vouched for, had an easy entree to the best Cuban society, and through one of several letters of introduction to Havana families, given me by my relatives, I was finally introduced into the family of Don Ramon Gutierrez, whose only daughter was Carmen, was she on whom I had so ardently set my affections. Gutierrez, I found out, was himself a sugar planter, his ingenio, or plantation, being located in the neighborhood of Sanya La Grande, while his family consisted of his wife and a daughter and two sons bright fellows of about twenty-two and twenty-four, students in the university. Besides these, there was an old maiden aunt of his, Doña Rosita. She was a dependent relative, noted for extreme piety, and still more extreme suspicion of everybody with whom she came in contact. The wife, Doña Josefa, was the granddaughter of a Boston sugar merchant, whose daughter had married a Cuban and it was through her that my beloved one had derived that beautiful New England complexion so rare and striking among these people. Unfortunately, while I could converse in Spanish, Carmen, or Carmencita, as I soon learned to call her, while proficient in French, did not know a word of my language, and though my love increased from day to day, as i became more and more acquainted with her lovely character and the firmness yet tenderness of her disposition i soon found that love-making in cuba was a much more roundabout process than in the states in cuba under no circumstances is a young man left alone with a young lady but all the tender things he has to say must be said in a whisper or under cover of a fan while in the presence of the girl's mother or in my case frequently in that of Doña Rosita. Whenever I attempted to come to the point, there were the sharp eyes of the old lady gleaming at me. A Cuban young man could probably have managed the affair very easily. They are brought up on that style of courtship, but to me it was peculiarly embarrassing, and I many times regretted that I had left out French in my college course, or that Carmen could not talk English, neither of which languages Doña Rosita knew still carmen and i understood each other and one evening on the acatea, as they call the flat-top tiled roofs of their houses i found my opportunity under the friendly cover of darkness i at last managed to tell her of my love and to win her promise to become my wife the next day i wrote to her father then in the country and after a short delay received his consent to pay my addresses to his daughter everything promised brightly for the future Carmen was a devoted Cuban, as were also her two brothers. They hated the Spaniards, and delighted on every occasion to apply to them all manner of opprobrious epithets. Don Ramon, however, having large property interests, was much more conservative, and always expressed himself with extreme reserve. I had been approached cautiously several times with a view to being induced to enroll myself in one of the revolutionary clubs, but as I had participated only recently in a revolution in our own country, where I had come out on the losing side, I did not care to embroil myself in quarrels not my own. Besides, although I was slightly acquainted with our diplomatic representative in Cuba, Mr. De La Rente, The consul general, the passions engendered by our recent war had not yet cooled down, and as I did not know how far the protection of my own government might be extended in case I got into any difficulty, I was particularly careful to avoid any action that might arouse suspicion. In spite of my precautions, Carmen's brothers had, on two or three occasions, introduced me into little conclaves of their friends where ultra-revolutionary sentiments were freely indulged in. At one of these, in which, it is needless to say, I took no part, I first met a young Cuban named Trulio, who was a frequent visitor at the Gutierrez home, and, as I learned, one of Carmen's rejected admirers. Him I disliked from the first. It must have been instinctive. He, in turn, detested me thoroughly. Meantime, matters between the two factions had grown rapidly worse. The peninsular Spaniards, in civil life, had organized the casino club, and all the members had become volunteer soldiers to assist the government in suppressing the rising rebellion. On several occasions, this citizen soldiery had been fired upon by the Cubans from the tops of houses as they were passing below. The assailants would then escape over the adjoining roofs, and so out at an entirely different point. Retaliation had followed, and the Spaniards went about only in groups. When one of their number was fired upon, the rest took summary vengeance on the inhabitants of the house, without stopping to inquire whether they were innocent or guilty of complicity. They were usually innocent. Of course, these occurrences intensified the feeling. Admiral Hoff was then in command of the United States North Atlantic Squadron, and when his flagship, the Contacook, was in port, I had formed the habit of frequently going on board to visit the younger naval officers. Between them and myself, although we had fought on opposite sides, there had arisen a very cordial feeling. While ashore, I was frequently their host, on board, their guest, and always made to feel a very welcome one. On one of my visits, happening to mention, laughingly, my bad standing at the consulate, one of the lieutenants handed me a small American flag and said, Keep that, and it will protect you as well as the consulate. From that time, I constantly wore it on my person as a badge of my nationality. Meantime, during the years I had spent in Cuba, my people at home had gradually recovered some of their war losses, and now urged my return. Indeed, I was getting tired of foreign life myself, and pled with Carmencita to marry me at once, and leave the island, but she was too ardent a patriot to consent she always seemed to anticipate some sudden rising of her friends with successful expulsion of the Spaniards and achievement of Cuban independence at one blow. Then, Roberto, she would say, we will have a grand wedding. In a short time, Cuba will be one of the United States, and your wife will not be a foreigner after all. About this time, Don Ramon, while absent from home, was arrested on suspicion of aiding the insurgents. This caused deep distress in his family and although he was released within a week the incident seemed to embitter them more against the spaniards the condition of affairs was growing worse daily an american photographer named cohen had been shot down in the streets by a body of volunteers because on the challenge of quien viva he had not promptly responded espana poor fellow he probably did not know it was required of him at the louvre cafe a number of persons had been shot by the casino volunteers while sitting at the little tables, taking refreshments under the suspicion that they were Cuban conspirators. Already armed uprisings had taken place in the eastern end of the island. Several students of good family had been garroted by the authorities for seditious utterances. Cubans were beginning to be suspicious of each other and fearful of betrayal. Unfortunately, in a few instances, such treachery actually took place, causing arrests and executions. To one brought up as I had been, such a life was simply horrible, and only my love for Carmencita held me captive. While I felt that the Cubans were amply justifiable in their rebellion against Spain, I could not admire the underhand methods they adopted to compass their ends. The Spaniards, on the other hand, were much more open and bold, but perfectly ruthless in their vengeance. The knowledge that there was a plot, and that Cubans were in it, was sufficient to bring about a swift trial, with a brief interval for confession and shriving by a priest, followed immediately thereafter by execution in a death chair, or garret. One evening, I was sitting in the audience at the villeneuve theater with some other young men, among whom was Truio, whom I have before mentioned. A new actress was to appear, and the house was crowded. After the first act, in response to their enthusiastic recall, she began a patriotic song, and as she concluded the first stanza, suddenly drew from some part of her costume a handsome Cuban flag, unfurling it as she cried out, Viva Cuba Libre! Hurrah for free Cuba! Poor girl, the words were her last. Scarcely were they out of her lips when a volley was fired from the back seats of the audience by the Spanish soldiery there seated, instantly killing her and three others, and wounding several more. The wildest panic ensued, lights were extinguished, and in the confusion I was hurried out by Truillo and my other companions to a room in the rear of a small café on the Plaza de la Reforma. Here were assembled some twenty or more young Cubans, all talking at once, and with fierce gesticulations denouncing this outrage. Watching for an opportunity, I was just about to retire when, with a crash, one of the doors was burst open and a squad of volunteer police was among us there was a wild rush for escape and many simultaneous struggles in all parts of the room when the confusion was over i together with four others was in the hands of the police truio had disappeared some time before and all the rest had escaped i explained to the officer in command of the squad that i was an american citizen and in token of it pulled out the little united states flag which had been given me by my friend the lieutenant he took it with derision tore it to shreds before my face spat upon it and trampled it under foot had my hands not been seized i should have struck him down if it had cost me my life i felt personally outraged in every nerve of my body the act of that spaniard did more to reconstruct me as the saying is than even my four years of exile and from that hour my love and loyalty for the old flag never deserted me. Under strong guard we were conveyed to the military prison, and confined in separate cells. Next day, about noon, I was visited by a mixed commission, composed of military officers and civilians, and subjected to a long and searching interrogation. All my answers were carefully taken down by a secretary, and when the examination was concluded, I was asked to subscribe my name at the bottom. I was about to comply when, on reading it over, I found, preceding my own examination, a garbled and very inaccurate account of the circumstances attending my arrest. This I declined to sign as correct, notwithstanding much persuasion and a good many threats. I asked, instead, to be allowed to write to our Consul General, Mr. De La Rentre, but this was refused me, as they said he had nothing to do with the case. I now began to feel alarmed for my own safety, and this alarm was increased when three days elapsed without my seeing anyone but the man who brought my daily rations. The mental strain was fearful. On the fourth day, paper, pens, and ink were furnished me, and I was informed I might write to whom I liked. My spirits brightened, and I at once wrote a long statement of all the circumstances to our Consul-General and implored him to come to see me in prison, and to look to it that I should be fairly treated, and given a proper opportunity to establish my innocence of any complicity in plots against the integrity of Spain. Imprudently, I mentioned with considerable warmth the incident of the tearing up of the American flag, and the insults the Spanish had offered it. I take it for granted this letter was never forwarded to our consul, as I neither saw him nor heard from it afterward. I had thoughts at first of writing to Carmen, but fearing that this might compromise her family, I refrained. Next day, at about 10 a.m., an officer came to my cell, and with great gravity informed me that my companions and I had been tried by the court of safety, lately instituted, and found guilty of sedition and treason, and that we had been condemned to expiate our crime on the garret at noon the following day. He supplemented this astounding statement with a short exhortation to make my peace with God, and said that one of the fathers of the church would visit me that evening to hear my confession and administer to me the consolations of religion. I will spare you the recital of my feelings, tried, convicted, and sentenced without one chance to defend myself. Yet such were the methods employed by the Spanish authorities to crush out the first Cuban rebellion. My dinner that day was all that could be desired, even wine was furnished. Needless to say, it was untouched. Though I asked for the privilege, no further opportunity was given me to appeal to our consul, nor indeed to write at all. About dusk the priest came in, and was allowed to remain with me alone. I turned from him, for my mood was too bitter to admit of thoughts of God, or, in fact, of anything except a wild compassion for myself, far from home and kindred, and abandoned to my fate by all the world. God himself seemed unjust, and I had no use for his minister. Just then I heard a sob behind me. Turning suddenly at the sound, I saw the priest face downwards on my cot, sobbing as if his heart would break. I touched him on the shoulder, and he turned his face towards me. It was that of Carmen. The devoted girl had learned of my fate through her brother. It appears that Trujillo, after the catastrophe at the theater, had seen, in our retreat to the Cuban rendezvous, an opportunity to revenge himself on his successful rival. His denunciation of the place to the police caused the surprise and arrest. He became what we here call state's evidence, and his testimony, corroborated by certain circumstances he was able to point out, had been sufficient to secure my conviction. As I have said, Carmen's family were not in good odor with the authorities, but through other influences she was enabled to procure the long black habit of a priest, which, with the cowl and hat, completely disguised her. By the same potent means she had secured an assignment to this prison duty. Under her loose robes she had concealed a similar garb for me, hat and all, which she made me quickly assume. With a small pair of scissors she deftly cut off my mustache, informing me that my passage to wilmington north carolina had been engaged on the schooner almirante plying in the fruit trade and that this little vessel was to sail at four p m the next day i was to boldly walk out of my cell on the signal when her time was up and so out into the street impersonating the priest while she was to remain behind this plan i objected to on the ground of possible danger to herself but she assured me that it was all arranged that she should follow shortly afterwards, and that even if discovered, her punishment, at most, would be a heavy fine and banishment, whereas for me to remain meant death. You know, Roberto, she said, as soon as my father can settle some business matters, we are all going to the United States, where you will rejoin us, and we shall be happy ever afterwards. Well, it would be a profanation to speak of our parting. In the end, I consented to her plan. When the signal was given, I walked out, and passing without the slightest difficulty, the guard and sentinels, I soon found myself in the street, once more a free man. My quarters were as I left them, and I easily entered unnoticed. I lay awake long that night, pondering on the heroic devotion of the girl who loved me, to save me she had not hesitated to trample on all conventionalities in a society whose whole basis was conventional and where to violate one of its laws meant social suicide yet she came and reached me in spite of locks and bars and prison guards next morning after an early breakfast i packed my personal belongings and sent them on board the almirante by a trusty cargador then in spite of the risk i took a volant and was driven out to the cerro to have one parting interview with carmencita though she had advised me against such a course when i arrived at her house to my surprise i found it closed and the windows barred and as i dared not make inquiries for fear of attracting attention i had myself driven back to the city as i passed the beautiful plaza della reforma i noticed a large and excited crowd gathered and saw in the centre on a raised platform the chair of the garret this consists of a large armchair, to the legs and arms of which are securely fastened the legs and arms of the person to be executed. Around the neck of the condemned person is passed a metallic collar, at the back of which is a small vertical wheel resembling a brake wheel. One turn of this by the executioner drives a sharp pointed instrument into the spine, and death immediately ensues. I stop the volant to gaze on the gruesome scene. On the platform, raised some distance above the heads of the spectators, were the condemned, two or three priests, the guards, and attendants. Below were five hearses and as many coffins. One body was being taken down, and another was being arranged in the fatal chair. I did not know him, nor did I the next, though the faces of both were familiar to me. Then there seemed to be a pause. One of the priests sat down in the chair as if to try it, it almost looked as if they fastened him in, even going so far as to adjust the collar about his neck, when-what was this? At a signal the executioner gave one quick turn of the wheel. The priest, too, was dead. His head fell on one side, and as it fell, there dropped from it his cap and wig, revealing to all the long fair hair and beautiful features of-Carmen. She had given her life for mine i fell back insensible in the Valant. when i recovered my senses we were far out on the ocean how i got on board the amirante i never knew the captain said i was brought there insensible by two young men now ned you know why i have never married robert deering left us the next day i never saw him afterwards a few months ago he died in new mexico Where he had gone, on the advice of a physician, to seek that health he did not desire. At last, that noble heart, so long bereaved, is united to that of the devoted Cuban girl, Carmen. End of section five. Recording by Narrator J.